0: We apply our patent pending Stanley rubric to the final movie in our season three March trilogy month, Oceans 13 from 2007, directed by Steven Soderbergh, written by Brian Koppelman and David Levine, starring George Clooney, Brad Pitt, Matt Damon, Andy Garcia and Al Pacino. However, quickly before we get to the show, next week we will be bringing you our second annual Oscars preview with some additional fun in store. You won't want to miss that one, so make sure you like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use so you get all of our content coming up. All right, Dad. So, I think I mentioned this last week during our Ocean's 12 episode, but what is your relationship to this movie? I think you and I went to the
1: theater to see this together, if I remember right.
0: Yes. So I think it was June and it might've been around a kind of like Father's Day release. So I do remember going to theaters with you specifically to see it. And I don't think either of us, I might've seen 12 once. And I do remember every time we watched 13 for like the first three or four times, you're like, who the hell is that guy? And it was Tallulah because he's the only character that doesn't appear in the first film.
1: Yeah, I know. I didn't, uh, It makes a lot more sense after you've seen 12, but uh, since I hadn't.
0: Well, he's the only character that really you need any background from the second movie for. Everybody else, for that matter, because they wrote out Julia Roberts and Catherine Zeta-Jones for this one. And it just becomes much more of a buddy-buddy movie than anything else. So I really do think they leaned into the male-dominant element in this one, as opposed to having some weird love tryst. That doesn't always quite fit. Okay. Anything else you can remember about uh, your relationship to this movie over the years? No, other than the fact
1: that your mother refused to go and see it, so um, because she hated Ocean's Eleven.
0: She still hates
1: Ocean's Eleven.
0: But then again, she's hated a lot of movies over the years that have grown on her. I think she mentioned the last time that she was on the show that she hated Dodgeball, and now that one she loves.
1: Yes, I know.
0: Honestly, the movies she likes... Are probably really bad, and the movies that she hates are probably really good. Yes,
1: we had this conversation uh, this week at a uh, dinner we had on Wednesday night uh, for the staff because it's the anniversary of our engagement uh, this week, and uh, which is actually yesterday, I believe. Yes, it's what we celebrate instead of Valentine's Day, so it has more memory. It's more memorable, I should say. And uh, the first weekend I was there, they went. Her, and her mother went to, uh, at that time, the grocery store and selected a VHS off of the rack. And she said, oh, it looked good on the box.
0: Is this the Young Frankenstein weekend? Yes.
1: I said, uh, well, that really was a horrible movie. And she responded and said, well, if you think you can do so much better, you pick the movie. Of which she said, I didn't say it like that. And then I... Well, of mentioned course. to the entire staff. For those of you that know Chris, realistically, she didn't say it that way. It was more like, Well, I know that you're criticizing my taste in movies, and I consider that a personal attack. So I'm going to talk like this because that's how I would normally respond when I feel like I've been criticized. And everybody's busting out laughing because uh, they know I was closer to the reality than the first time than the second.
0: Well, the second is clearly a measured response that literally no human on Earth would ever make. (laughs) But anyway, if you want further depth on that particular story, I would suggest, I think it's episode 23 is our Young Frankenstein episode. Go back and listen to that one. But carrying on for Ocean's 13, would there have been a better choice for an antagonist in this movie than Al Pacino?
1: Al Pacino was pretty good. I'm just trying to think offhand at that time who would have been a better um, choice as a protagonist.
0: No, not protagonist. We have our protagonist.
1: Excuse me, our our villain. I'm not sure offhand who... I, I would have to
0: give it some thought as to who might have made a better villain. So, first off, you need somebody that's probably in the same age range as an Andy Garcia, and you'd need them to be able to overact considerably to create kind of a caricature. Because realistically, that's what Al Pacino's done since he did his, well, for that matter, even when he won his Oscar in 92% of a woman. He's just been kind of an overactor for 30 years. (laughs) I'll I'll even admit, he might even uh, have been an overactor by the time we go back to Scarface. I don't think he's done a measured response since probably dog day afternoon yeah well i know i
1: have uh, never been a huge al pacino fan simply for that reason i can't honestly think of anybody off the top of my head that would have made a better villain
0: well i don't ask the question to actually supplement that i thought he was bad in this i actually think that he is the exact right person you would have gotten yeah he fits the exact structure you need for this movie and is able to do that kind of comedic shtick of creating a Willie Bank character that's easily mm-hmm. hateable, but not to the point where he's loathsome. You just think of him as a big dick who needs his comeuppance by the end of the movie.
1: Yeah. The only person I could think of, that, but then he would be more dark. John Lithgow, but not uh, the third rock from the sun, John
0: Lithgow, but the, See, the one season
1: that he's on Dexter.
0: Yeah, that's way too dark. I'm thinking if, if he's going to go comedic and kind of over the top, you'd almost need him to the level of Barney's dad when he was in How I Met Your Mother for those few episodes where he invents the word furgling. <laughs> it means fumbling for keys. No, I don't. Uh, the immediate one would be to say De Niro, but I think De Niro already had his role with the whole meet the parents and he has to play it really straight as opposed to this like expansive over the top character that uh, Pacino makes in this particular movie. So I don't think that would have worked. You could have gone maybe younger kind of in the vein of Andy Garcia. But since that had already been done, you kind of needed somebody that was a little bit more over the top. I'm kind of thinking maybe not to the hateable level of Bradley Cooper in Wedding Crashers. But something kind of in that vein with a younger car- character actor. But I even that I still think that this creates such a unique blend between because you're bringing in all of the stuff from Pacino and trying to fit it into a Vegas model that is kind of Rat Pack ish. And while Pacino doesn't necessarily get automatically associated with that, it's not like he's that far outside of the parameters of what you're going. How about Jeremy Piven? Yeah. Jeremy Piven from old school type Jeremy Piven. I don't know if that would have worked, though, because this cast seems to be very tight knit. And Jeremy Piven is notoriously one of the worst people in Hollywood to work with or one of the biggest jerks. And I can faithfully say that one because that thing has been buzzed around Hollywood for years. I don't even think that's a rumor. I think that's just like confirmed at this point. Like, everybody says Tom Hanks, Henry Winkler, are some of the nicest people. Jeremy Piven is one of the worst, apparently. I could think of, he, he would have to play it that way, but
1: you could have um,
0: Gary Sinise. See, I don't know if I could buy Gary Sinise as doing something that's like this. Gary Sinise has never struck me as comedic or over the top. He's very straight. I mean, realistically, have you ever seen Gary Sinise do something that was... Like well outside of the act or outside of like a serious drama role. No, I suppose not. The only one I could think of is Lieutenant Dan has some moments where he's like really shaggy and ragged. But even that's playing within the structure of what that movie was supposed to be. And that was his first like real acting job, I believe. Or excuse me, his first movie. I think he might have been on TV and I knew he did some Broadway before that. He was kind of brought in from the stage, if I remember right.
1: He started the
0: Steppenwolf Theater in Chicago. Okay. So let's move into the rest of this and finish up our trilogy with our plot summary. Do you have one for us?
1: I do. After Ruben uh, Tishkoff, Elliot Gould, is strong-armed into relinquishing his interest in a new casino to his partner, Willie Bank, Al Pacino, Danny Ocean, George Clooney, Rusty Ryan, Brad Pitt, and Linus Caldwell, Matt Damon... And the rest of the Ocean's Eleven hatch a plan to avenge Ruben. However, this time, they don't need to win as
0: much as they need Bank to lose. Thank you. Cast for this movie George Clooney as Danny Ocean, Brad Pitt as Rusty Ryan, Matt Damon as Linus Caldwell, Andy Garcia as Terry Benedict, Don Cheadle as Basher Tar, Bernie Mac as Frank Catton, Elliot Gould as Ruben Tishkoff, Casey Affleck as Virgil Malloy, Scott Kahn as Turk Malloy. Eddie Jameson as Livingston Dell, Shabo Kin as The Amazing Yen, Carl Reiner as Saul Bloom, Eddie Izzard as Roman Nagel, Al Pacino as Willie Bank, Ellen Barkin as Abigail Sponder, Vincent Cassell as Francois Talour, Bob Einstein as FBI agent Robert Bobby Caldwell, David Paymer as the VUP, Julian Sands as Greco Montgomery, and Jerry Weintraub as Denny Shields. Recognition for this movie? Ocean's 13 was released on June 8, 2007 in the United States. The film did well on its first weekend, reaching the top spot at the North American box office, pulling in $36 million. By the end of December 2007, Ocean's 13 had generated $117.2 million in the box office domestically and $311.4 million worldwide. It features an average score of 70% among critics on Rotten Tomatoes and a 62% on Metacritic. Did you know... This special scent that Linus puts on his neck to seduce Abigail is noted in a title card as the Gilroy. This is an inside joke on Tony Gilroy, who wrote the screenplays for The Born Identity, The Born Supremacy, and The Born Ultimatum, all starring Matt Damon. Gilroy also wrote and directed Michael Clayton, which stars George Clooney and is produced by Steven Spielberg. Did you know? Al Pacino was director Steven Spielberg's first choice for the role of Willie Bank. The film's producer, Jerry Weintraub, a friend of Pacino's, persuaded him to join the cast. Did you know? This is one of Bernie Mac's final acting roles before his death on August 9, 2008, at age 50. Did you know? Peter Fonda, who had appeared in a deleted scene in Ocean's 12, 2004, was slated to reprise his role as Bobby in this film, but his work on Ghost Rider, 2007, prevented him from doing so. Unfortunately, you pick a Nick Cage movie over this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow. All right. So uh, let's take a quick break and we will be right back. All right. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, what would be the elevator pitch for this movie? Sophisticated criminals take revenge. That's an even shorter version of the one I did, but trying to help their friend recover, Ocean's Eleven takes on a revenge job to destroy one of the most easily hateable casino owners.
1: Okay, can I ask you
0: which casino owners are well liked? I don't know the ones that own casinos in Reno. Maybe the tribes, because there's at least enough people to kind of like sort out. But I know that's not a universal opinion. I just don't have any personal animus against, like, the Potawatomi that run the casinos here in Wisconsin or something. The Ho-Chunk. Well, Edelman's dead. Yeah. Steve Wynn? He's hateable. Yeah, to the nth degree. Oh, the Seminole Nation with the Hard Rock casinos. I don't have any personal animus towards them. <laughs> uh, okay. Again, this was the whole point was it's the most easily hateable casino owner. Some of them you have to dig a little bit beyond the surface. This one's just way out on the surface. Yeah. Best performance for you? Uh, Matt Damon on this one. I like the
1: whole thing with uh, the interplay with his his dad and the uh, the nose. And uh, the whole scene leading up to the diamond heist. I think he carried a bigger role in this one and did a nice job.
0: So I think there is a progression across all three movies where the first Ocean's Eleven, you had to have the star power of Brad Pitt and George Clooney, who were clearly like movie stars, and their charisma had to carry big portions of the movie. Yes, the other characters were there, but they weren't necessarily huge features. And you were kind of carrying it on the backs of them. But as we go through each one of these movies, you have bigger and bigger roles for all of the supplemental characters. By the time we get to 13, this is really an ensemble cast instead of Clooney and Pitt carrying it. I mean, realistically, Clooney and Pitt are just kind of there. They may be the leaders, and you may go and see it because they're on the poster, but they're not the ones who get like an enormous amount of screen time by comparison to everybody else. I mean, Cheadle's got a big role in this one. Khan and Casey Affleck have big roles in this one, and I agree with you. Matt Damon was my best secondary performance on this particular movie because you think about it, even though Matt Damon, by the time they did the first one, had been leading movies. He was in The Incredible Mr. Ripley or excuse me, the talented Mr. Ripley, I think it is. And uh, he had been in um, Goodwill Hunting by this point. He'd been in The Rainmaker. He'd been in Rounders. He'd done a lot of different movies where he could lead something. He wasn't necessarily a headliner guy until he'd done both this franchise and, more specifically, the Bourne franchise. This is the same year that he did the third Born movie, where he could really headline a movie, and you'd go to see it specifically because Matt Damon was in it. It's not the days where he was clearly being outshone by Ben Affleck and he was the lesser of the two in that relationship or that bromance relationship. I think that's the word I'm looking for. This was one where I think he got much more play and thus, as a result, I agree with you. He leads a specific portion of the movie when it's talking about the cougar scene or him stealing the diamonds, the nose, the interplay with his dad, who ends up being Bob Einstein. He is very charismatic he played a bigger role and across all three of them, his role just continues to get bigger as we go along each movie to the point where I think he's probably one of the biggest shiners of this particular movie. That being said, I did not go with him for best performance because I wanted to note what I thought was something remarkable. Now, I don't know if you are familiar with Brian Koppelman and David Levine. They are a writer pair that has done probably a lot of things that you've heard of or know of, but don't necessarily travel in certain circles unless you listen to certain podcasts or pay attention to certain cultural sections. So they are the writers for both rounders and billions. And they just started the series Super Pumped, which is led by uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. That's another Showtime series about the founding of Uber. And I really almost love just about everything that they've written. I'm really going to enjoy when we finally get to the movie Rounders, because I think that's a movie you're going to really enjoy. But they do such a great job because this movie should not have worked this well. We talked last week with Ocean's 12, how it kind of deviated from the original formula and didn't feel like it was an Oceans movie in some ways. At moments and times, you could tell that it was and it had a lot of the same characters, but it didn't use some of the same parts. To me, this movie recaptures some of the formula. Not only do you reset it in Vegas, not only do you make it against an easily hateable casino owner, and I know some of that is redundant. You've already pointed that out. But you wrote a good villain enough that somebody like an Al Pacino who has some star power could carry that portion of the movie. You make it a better ensemble cast. You at least have the talent to write something that isn't necessarily a heist movie. I mean, that's one of the unique parts about this movie. The other two, you had to have like a big reveal in the rest of that. The magic of this movie is, is you just need to know whether they pull off the job by the end of it. There aren't a ton of surprises to this movie. There are a couple small ones, but realistically, it's just in okay, they've been against all odds up to this point. Do they pull it off? And you still have a great kind of final moment, final act to this movie. So I thought for the amount of odds that were against them, the third movie in a trilogy should not be one of the better ones. And I think arguably, I bandied it back and forth this week, but this might be my favorite of the three movies, which is odd to say because I love Ocean's Eleven, but it's kind of neck and neck for me at times. For this to work as well as it did for me, I think you need to recognize the accomplishment of the writers for creating a script and a movie that I don't think probably should have been done this well. Best secondary for you. I have a tie, and it's kind of unusual because I picked two
1: longtime character actors who just had smaller roles in this, but whose parts let them shine and almost take over every scene they're in. I have David Paymer and uh, Bob Einstein.
0: Because every time both of them are on screen, they're hilarious. And you you just, they take over. David Pamer is the definition of a that guy. Yes. Like, I don't know if anybody knows him as David Paymer, but you've definitely seen him in several different movies or TV shows, and you're like, oh, I recognize that guy. And Bob Einstein, his father was a uh, comedian who... Uh,
1: actually collapsed and died at, while performing at a friar's roast in the late 50s. And Bob Einstein swore off comedy as a result as a teenager and then ended up going back into it. And they, uh, he was a, uh, a trio of comedy writers for the Smothers Brothers, along with two other guys that have had some success. Um, what were their names? Oh, Steve Martin and Rob Reiner. But he's one of these guys that have been hanging around in Hollywood for a long time. Uh, unfortunately, he passed, I believe, last year. Oh unexpectedly. no, it's been like three or four years, I think now. Has it been that long?
0: Yeah, he passed away rather suddenly. Because
1: he was in the last, ep- or last season of Comedians in Cars getting
0: coffee. He also had a big role, I guess, in the show that I don't watch because, frankly, I don't find it funny, and I don't find Seinfeld funny, which is why I don't think much of this show but curb your enthusiasm i guess he was a very mm-hmm. distinct character in that universe as well but it's been a while since we did comedians and cars they would have had to produce that and put it out in like 2019 i think yeah you're not doing comedians and cars getting coffee when there are no restaurants open for two years that's true but 2019 i think he passed in 2020 uh, I, well we can look it up later okay Anyway, uh, so then, most charismatic for you. It's always, it's Clooney.
1: I don't care. I, I wish, it's disgusting of how good he looks on screen and how smooth he looks. He can do anything and look good. It must just be really, it must be something to have that kind of, of or those kind of looks and that level of sophistication. I, I don't get it, and... I wish I could. It's too bad you can't bottle it.
0: My most charismatic was Al Pacino. Again, I think he's the perfect foil for this movie because as straight-laced and serious as the first movie is with Andy Garcia, even he can make fun of himself a little bit. And I think at times in this movie, Al Pacino just dials it up to like 15 and just, okay. I mean, he's just got such weird character moments. Certain qualities about creating this Willie Bank and I I don't know I have always enjoyed his version of this in this movie let's go to best scene then the nominees that I wrote down Bank betrays Ruben the Greco and I think that's a much larger scene because that really goes through and has like that opening montage that kind of explains things I actually think that's one of the best written scenes of the movie VUP very unimportant person labor strike New Investor, Elevator Dodging, Opening Night, The Cartwheel, magnetron, Stealing the Diamonds, Camp to Belong, and Goodbye. Did I miss any?
1: Nope.
0: Yeah, it's kind of hard to miss any when you have like 12 nominees, but still. So what is the best scene?
1: I don't know. I I personally think that um, the montage that you indicated at the opening that kind of lays it out and explains everything after the initial strong arm of Ruben is probably the best scene.
0: Yeah, there's so much written into that. And I don't know how it doesn't like topple in on itself. These movies have some really great montages like strung together. And the editing is really crisp when it comes to that. But kind of how you went through and you explained how each one of the characters is set up to rig a certain game at the casino and each has their own role. But now you're coming up with the main problem that they're going to endure. I mean, I just think that's one of the best written scenes. I'm trying to think if there's really a better scene than that. Hmm.
1: No, I mean, the only one that would even come close to me is just watching the sheer decline of David Pamer. I mean, you know, he goes from being this guy who's going to rate for the Diamonds uh, star award. And all of a sudden it just... Goes from bad to worse, you know, getting ill from the or from food poisoning, peeling back the covers and with the blue light and seeing uh, bed bugs and everything crawling around him running from the room, almost like wincing.
0: I don't know. The only other one I can think of that I think would rival it is the one that I would nominate for my favorite scene. Because I think it's the one scene that if it's right before that particular moment in the movie, I will definitely stop and watch because I really like the payoff of everything leading to that moment. It's kind of that final act. It's the magnetron when everything finally goes to plan and they have those three and a half minutes to basically empty the casino of all of its coffers. And you see all the numbers racking up and everybody's got the games rigged and they're winning such high dollar amounts. And all of a sudden, everything is going to plan. And it's the momentum of that and the finishing note that comes with it, eventually with a line that I'm going to nominate for uh, best lines coming up. To me, that's probably my favorite moment within the whole thing because of the buildup to that point. I think it's such a great payoff that it's probably my favorite moment. Favorite scene for you?
1: I, I love uh, the whole labor strife in Mexico. <laughs> I think it's, it's such hilarious. a random aside in this movie. I mean, it's just, it, you know, they're... they're uh... They're pointing to Pancho Villa, and I mean, it's, it's like
0: this is ridiculous. And what did they finally realize they were striking over? What was it like? So there are two particular moments that are just great. Well, excuse me, three that I find extremely humorous. You said Pancho Villa, but it's actually Zapata who oh, okay, is yes. on a beer really? label. He's just <laughs> the guy from the beer label that's on the poster on the wall. So he he has absolutely no meaning whatsoever that I'm aware of. The second one was, all right, we're going to send uh, Scott Kahn down to be with Casey Affleck to sort things out. And then he just joins in on the strike. And then finally, as you mentioned, the money. $36,000 was the final total, but they're like, oh, $36,000 per person? Oh, that's like $17 million. No, 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 not 36 per person. 36 total. Okay, <laughs> we'll just write him a check. We'll post date it. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if that's somehow bad because you you see the disparity in wages in Mexico, but I don't know. I I guess maybe I'm not sensitive enough to like think that that somehow doesn't play yet. Anyway, most indelible moment. For me, it's the capture of Linus, you know, with the whole thing. And, you know, if you're paying attention,
1: you know that there's something fishy going on with Bob Einstein because they arrest uh, Livingston and they put him in the car and he smiles. And then before Einstein uh, apprehends Linus, Livingston's again on the radio communicating with the guy. So he's obviously not in custody. So you kind of know it if you're paying attention, but still, just to watch that whole thing where he reveals who he is and and then you know, being in the elevator and the father-son relationship and i just thought that was the part of the film that i always remember
0: are you uh, reminded of anyone in that particular moment
1: uh not really you'd have to have children
0: who actually followed in your footsteps to be completely reminded i suppose if you want to do completely like for like to me it's more green apples versus red apples but whatever For me, the most indelible, though, is actually a specific moment as opposed to like a scene. I know we do it several times, but I'm going to kind of hone in on one particular moment and frankly, even a line. You shook Sinatra's hand. The amount of times that that's used throughout the course of the movie and it pays off in the end and it comes back around, I think ends up being one of the defining lines and moments of this movie. And so for me... You always know what that line is coming if you've seen this movie enough times. And I think it's kind of a symbolism of as much as Soderbergh specifically engineered the first two movies to not have anything to do with the remake and wanted them to be appreciated for themselves, especially because I know the remake isn't or excuse me, the original Ocean's Eleven isn't necessarily like this classic movie. It is and it isn't. I don't know how many people know that that's the original as opposed to the original 2001 we discussed two weeks ago. The fact that you blend in and kind of really establish that you're willing to embrace parts of the Sinatra, Rat Pack, Vegas side of this, especially with Our Town at the end of the movie, I think encompassing that and then bringing in that particular line enhances kind of the cool factor of this movie. So for me, that's an indelible moment. All right, let's take another quick break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us again. Dad, before we get into Best Lines, do we have anyone to remember this week?
1: Yes, uh, we do.
0: Tim Considine,
1: American actor, was on the original Mickey Mouse Club, then went on to be uh, the first son in My Three Sons with Fred McMurray, left the show, did do one part in the movie Patent. He was the soldier who was slapped by General Patton. but primarily after that kind of got out of acting and did a, a lot of work as a writer, I was credited with writing several books on automobile history and such. Johnny Brown, an American actor who had parts on good Times, was part of the original cast of uh, Rowan and Martin's Laugh In. Uh, had parts on um, The Flip Wilson Show, The Jeffersons, uh, Family Matters, Sister, Sister, The Jamie Foxx Show, The Wands Brothers, and Martin. Best known basically as uh, a uh, rather portly comedian with an ingratiating smile and easy joking style. John Stahl, a Scottish actor uh, who had uh, done Victor and Abdul and uh, Take the High Road, best known for playing Richard Carstark in the Game of Thrones.
0: Yeah, I'm not really familiar with John Stahl. I know Lord Carstark is kind of a minor character through that, but I think that would be probably the thing that people would take as the most significant role of his career. I, I don't know how many people have a huge connection beyond that, but that was probably the biggest TV show for about five years uh, Johnny Brown, I looked him up and I thought from the amount of things that he appeared in, I would just easily recognize him, but I unfortunately don't. But he's been in a lot of TV shows that I remember or kind of grew up with, particularly the Disney remakes or excuse me, Disney reruns of Sister Sister, I believe, although I don't particularly remember him on that show. But all three uh, obviously had a significant role in entertainment and Well, film and TV entertainment, and uh, so we take a moment of silence here in their honor to remember them and their work. Thank you. Let's move to best funniest lines. First one up for me, Terry Benedict referring to Danny donating Terry's share of the money to charity. You think this is funny? Well, Terry, it sure as shit ain't sad. A line I've used on many occasions. Ruben, the moment you
1: become embarrassed of who you are, you lose yourself. I changed my house, the way I dressed, the way I ate. For what? For nothing.
0: Turk and Virgil Malloy, don't change the facial structure. I'm making you taller. Don't you want to be taller? You're a midget in 34 states. Yeah, well, I'm an animal in the other 34. 24. 22. Mr. Banks, do you know what Chuck Berry said every night before counting 1, 2, 3, 4? What did he say? Pay me my money. doesn't work quite as well, I don't think, without the hand gesture to kind of give you context. But regardless, Danny to Willie Bank. You shook Sinatra's hand. You should know better.
1: Linus, he owns all of the air south of Beijing. The air? Let me put it this way. Try building something taller than street stories in the Taj. Let me put it this way. Try building something taller than street... Let me put it this way. Try building something taller than three stories in the Tajin province. Let me put it this way. Try building something taller than three stories in the Tajin province. Let me put it this way. Try building something taller than three stories in the Tajin province. Alright, I'm done. Go on. You do the next one. (laughs) Do you need me to
0: read it? I'm not doing it. <laughs> Six takes is my reco- is my limit. Let me put it to you this way. Try building something taller than three stories in the Tianjin province and see if his name comes up. All right, my final one. Willie and Danny, this town might have changed, but not me. I know people highly invested in my survival, and they are people who really know how to hurt in ways you can't even imagine. Well... I know all of the guys that you'd hire to come after me, and they like me better than you. So dismissive. It's just... Do you have any others? Nope. Let's move to the Stanley rubric then. Legacy is up first. You want to go first or second?
1: I'll go first. The fact that after three movies, the franchise was still so highly regarded they tried to reboot it with an all-female cast indicates that there's some level of persistence in the legacy among the general public, so that's why I went with a four uh, for the for the public. The simple fact too is, is these movies are on and they're shown quite often on uh, streaming services and on cable stations. So they're still drawing money years or decade at, more than a decade afterwards. So the industry, I think, is understanding that these still have significant
0: value and still play well. For all the kids out there, cable stations are things that used to be the streaming services of like the nineties and two thousands.
1: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So I went with a 3.5 for the industry. So that is an eight. No, it's
0: not. Oh, excuse me. 7.5. All right. So I'll grant you, I I did go a little higher for audience because I do think that there's an appetite for these. Personally, as far as I'm concerned, if they could have made them as good as these, and I don't think these have to be extravagant or really high budget. I know that you increased the amount of filming locations and you did some extra stunt work and kind of upgraded the difficulty, I guess, with each movie as they kind of went along. But realistically, if you set it in one place, you make it a good heist movie that has enough cons in it, and you do a decent script, I think they could probably could have pumped out like three more of these without too much problem, and they probably would have made a middling income. I don't think they all would have been, you know, three, four hundred million dollars worldwide, but you could have at least made a couple of decent ones that would make back their original payday, and I know that's not saying much, but This is a franchise that I'd love to revisit or have more of in my life. I think eventually, maybe about 10, 15 years from now, where you have kind of a new group of guys that are all these lead actors of about the same age or within maybe a 10, 15 year range, you might be able to do something like this again, where you kind of just have a rat pack. But I think they'll probably diversify the cast. They'll change it up and do some different things. But this could be recycled very easily. I just don't know if the industry really wants to do that because we attempted to do an all-female one. And even then, you still, in order for it to work or to have any semblance of attention, had to bring in several cast members from the original in order to, I don't know, placate an audience from the original and draw it back. Just because even though I don't think everybody was all in on an all-female Ocean's 8 I still do think that part of that didn't have to do with the fact that it was an engendered diversity part of it, but rather that you just didn't create the same atmosphere with the characters that you got. So I don't know. I was torn on this one. I could probably be persuaded out of it, but I went a one for industry. But I agree with you that this is still a playable movie. I don't know if it has the same connection that you and I do to everybody in the general public, but I kind of split the difference. I went with a three for the audience. So that's a four for me.
1: Well, I can tell you right now, the part of the problem with the oceans eight was not the cast. The script was horrible. I mean, you basically undersold and and screwed yourself by the ending. I mean, it
0: made the whole first half of the film pointless. Well, the reveal in it, well, actually, there are two major reveals, the whole Anne Hathaway plotline. And I don't mean to besmirch this movie that we haven't particularly reviewed. This is supposed to be Ocean's 13, but the Anne Hathaway plotline didn't feel deserved. And then you really undercut yourself with the whole heist because you introduced a character that was never on screen other than during the reveal of the heist. Yeah. So it, it just didn't pay off in the same ways, and I, I didn't think it was as elegant. But then again, you had somebody other than Soderbergh direct the sequel, I think, if I remember right. I don't think he directed Ocean's 8. So it's hard for a guy that's personally crafted the other three movies to create an, uh, the same atmosphere.
1: I think in about 10 years, you could do another Ocean's movie.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And what you do is, is you have it with Danny son as the principal.
0: Well, I even think that you could do his niece or nephew, but have like one of their ex-boyfriends be the, like the rusty of it. You just have to really kind of divide up the cast. And I don't think it can be all one gender by the time they would remake.
1: And I think you could
0: bring some of the uh,
1: original cast in because they're going to be older by then. You could have them play various other parts, and at least have some tie-in. They're avenging something. They're avenging Rusty. They're avenging Danny. Just my thought.
0: Again, I think it's more based on if you get a good script for it, because I think Warners would be able to put it out on like an HBO Max and have it attract attention where it's like a a streaming release as opposed to a theatrical one. And so you don't have to pump as much advertising into it. But yeah, it's something that, I think it could be a mid-level budget film that would work pretty well on one of these streaming services. Impact significance. Did very
1: well in the box office, and it was a well-talked-about movie. So from the industry itself, I went with a 4. And for the public, or excuse me, for the public, I went with a 4. And for the industry, I went with a 3.5. The r- reviews and the thought was, yet again, it was kind of a slick you know, well done movie, not nothing of any substance. There were some critics who kind of downplayed it because it was contrived and such. So I had a 7.5 for impact and significance.
0: Excuse me, you said 7.5? That is correct. Okay. And I forgot to give the average from Legacy, that was a 5.75. I'm going to go with a two and a half for industry. I think this kind of split the difference. I'm going to go right down the middle on that one because realistically, I think this was more well-received by critics and such. And if it hadn't been that one of the primary cast members had passed away, Bernie Mac, I do think that they probably would have brought this back around. I mean, even though I think it had generally less receipts than Ocean's 12, to probably do a... I don't know, what would you say, maybe $80, $90 million movie and then have it make 334 I mean, that's a good enough margin that you can produce and direct one of these and pop one out every three, four, five years and have it make enough money to kind of be bankable, I guess, from, from that perspective, especially given where Warners was at at the time. So I'll kind of split the difference on that one. I do agree with you that at least From an audience perspective, they did like this film, but is it that much different than 12? Probably not. So I'll go a three and a half on that one, six overall. So the difference between you and I, or excuse me, the average between you and I then would be a 6.75. Let's go to Novelty then. It's different from the other two. It still has an air that returns to its roots, I think. But it's different in the fact that while it's Vegas centric and has a good villain. I think all three of these movies has a pretty good villain. It's not a heist, but there's a tricky job to pull off. There's, Like I said before, there's no major reveal. There are a couple of small ones like the Bobby Caldwell and uh, the, the switcheroo on the diamonds, and I think there might be one more that I'm just blanking on at the moment, but you still are satisfied when everything goes to plan. And so because it kind of rides the same highs and... You still have those moments and you're enveloped in these characters. I don't think it's particularly novel because it's borrowing or treading on characters that exist already. And you didn't necessarily need a lot of character development because you have it from previous movies. But staying with the same franchise, being able with a third movie to kind of recapture what you had in the original, even a taste of that would have been novel in itself. I'll end up at a six and... I could be maybe talked into a six and a half or a seven.
1: For novelty, I, I wrestled with this because it's the third in a series. So you can't really claim it to be too novel, but the manner and means by which they did it, and even more technologically advanced this go around than the other two, to some extent. So I, I went with a six for novelty because of the fact that it was a little different than the other two. And because of just, again, the advance of the technology and kind of keeping up with where things were with the onset of the digital age.
0: So I think that's a good point to carry us into classicness. But before we get there, the average for that category was a six. We both had a six. So classicness, I am glad that you mentioned the technology aspect of it, because it really delves into the artificial intelligence player tracker as being a thing to overcome. And I do think that ages well. So I think that's actually a point in its favor generally. But other than the weird Oprah reference, because I mean, this is already almost 15 years ago, and I don't remember how long her show's been off the air, but kids and people my age might barely remember Oprah's talk show as being a big thing. You know, I'm not going to give it points down for that, but it's kind of a dated reference. There's really nothing I can think of to mark points up or down against for this movie. So I think I would go with the middle point I'll I'll probably give it a half point up for the artificial intelligence kind of aging well, because it's something we're still on the verge of and haven't quite gotten to that point. But I think it's coming. And so I think that actually is a point or a half point in favor. So I'll go with a 7.5.
1: I could not think of anything that was real. You mentioned Oprah, and I guess I hadn't even thought about that because even to this day, you know, Oprah is still huge.
0: Well, with your generation, who I think this movie is made for, and I don't know how many under 30 people know about this movie or really care, but for the people that it was made for originally in the intended audience, I think it's fine. It's just kind of one of those weird dated references at this point.
1: Yeah. But, and I understand your point, but I went with an eight because of just the sheer fact that I had diversity of casting, prominent role, at least with Ellen Barkin as a female. So,
0: okay. Rewatchability. This is a hard one for me. I really love this movie. I would say it's probably one of my favorites, but I think I have to create separation between the all-time favorites and the sometimes favorites and this one while i probably watch it and it's kind of one of those like easy watch put it on and just sit back and relax is it at the same level where i will have heightened attention for it like i do for 11 so i kind of straddled the difference a little bit but i'm gonna go with a nine and a half
1: okay i've been trying to figure out what my ranking is Okay. okay And Attend to Me is a film that I will go out of my way to put in periodically and watch. You know, that I own it or that um, I will record it and watch it at my convenience, that type of film. And then there's those that if it's on, I will watch automatically at least for a few minutes. And then there's those that I will watch if I'm in the right frame of mood This falls into the second category, which I give between an 8 and a 9, generally. So since I'm not sure where normally this would be, I still prefer 11 over this one. So I went with an 8.5 for that reason.
0: So that's a 9 average between us. And for audience score, we had an 89% for Google users. We had a 75% for Rotten Tomato users. So let's recap the categories here for you. We have a 5.75 for Legacy, a 6.75 for Impact Significance, a 6 for Novelty, 7.75 for Classicness, a 9 for Rewatchability, and an 8.2 for Audience Score, giving us a 43.45 total. And that would put it in between My Fair Lady and Sleepless in Seattle for currently 76th on our current list, which now has 103... Uh, total films on it. Okay, So kind of reasonable and it's better than 12, which I think is near the bottom, but uh, it's not nearly at the same heights as 11, which I would have probably guessed. I think this is about right. All right. Remaining questions for this one.
1: I, I really didn't. I don't know. I, uh, Talor uh, jumping off the building with a parachute. I, I mean, having been on the strip, that's a pretty narrow area with lots of high-rise hotels in that vicinity, to think that he could just kind of, you know, no problem, just kind of use his uh, steerable parachute to jump
0: and land safely. So you're obviously not familiar with base jumping, because that's exactly what he's doing. Realistically, that's highly believable, because there are people in, like, Los Angeles that'll jump off of smaller targets, and figure out how to land. That's not really that big a deal because I think given the specs and the scope that you get of the bank, the hotel, I mean, that's a fairly sizable spire. I think it has at least like 20 floors. So, you know, that's that's a decently tall building and you're just jumping off the top. Yeah, it might be a little tricky to land, but those parachutes are pretty steerable. And if he's got any experience, I mean, going back, he did the laser dance in 12. I think he would be at least a capable base jumper. So that that to me, I I don't think is as problematic as a couple of other things. There were a couple of spots that I spied on the internet for some maybe plot holes with the, the gaming machines and the rigged games. Like, even though you're going to get the dice to flip, you don't know exactly what they're going to land on. So how do you know what to bet? <laughs> that's, that's one of them. Also, if the blackjack dealer is specifically set to give out certain cards, you have to anticipate how many people are playing at the table. Can you really assume that the entire table will be full every single time so the dealer's always the fifth one to get cards? Just small things like that. But the biggest remaining question to me was, if all the people are running out the door and can't cash in their chips, where did they put them? Also, if that's the case, don't they have to really come back in and either cash them out or play them on the tables again? Which was the whole point of the exit strategy. They didn't want them to play with the cash and thus potentially lose all of the money that they had already gained. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That that one doesn't satisfy, but I don't want to think about it too hard because it ruins kind of the, the payoff of the movie.
1: Yeah, I, and I don't really have any others. I, I mean... Sometimes I think we try to fly spec films that are just designed to be there for fun. You know, it'd be one thing if you're trying to tell a realistic story about Las Vegas and there's holes. But it's not. It's not designed that way.
0: Or for that matter, if you're doing a historically accurate or biopic, I think those could probably be picked apart a lot better. Um, the elegance or the solution for something that's supposedly one of the great movies of all time. I think even 11 deserves a little bit higher scrutiny. This seems much more like screwball comedy, general entertainment than it does anything like high concept. So final thoughts for the week. Not off the top of my head. I really don't have anything. It's just
1: uh, springs around the corner and uh, I'm looking forward to that. We have a summer ahead and uh... A lot of good movies yet to review. And uh, getting ready for the Academy Awards.
0: I did want to mention something generally with this, and it's not something that we normally cover. Anybody who's listened to the show for a good period of time, you understand that the rules are we have a five-year embargo against all movies within the last five years. So for right now, I think we can just safely get to 2017 movies. So often we're not reviewing stuff that's of the moment. I know that most of the movie podcasts that are really popular are probably reviewing stuff both historically and stuff in the moment, but that's not what this current show is. We want to give some perspective of time. That being said, you and I watch a lot of current movies. We pay attention to the Oscars. We like to be of that part of the moment. And it still is meaningful for us, even though I don't think it's the cultural touchstone it was even 10 years ago, let alone 20, 30 years ago when the Oscars was probably the second rated telecast of the year behind like the Super Bowl. So is it the same? Are enough people going to pay attention? I think part of the reason why the ratings are suffering is, is that think about all of the movies that are nominated this year, and there had to be 10 of them how many of those are ones that have been seen by probably half the general public? I mean, that used to be at least like two or three of the primary Oscars favorites or the ones nominated for Best Picture were films that probably half the population had seen. You know, if you think about the 80s and Rain Man, I think, was the number one film that year that it won Best Picture. The Godfather, Jaws, Star Wars, Rocky. I'm trying to think of some of the other big ones. Raiders of the Lost Ark, E.T. I mean, these were some huge films of the moment and that are still like huge pop cultural moments. But those movies today, I don't know if they're ever nominated for Best Picture at this point. West Side Story was not generally seen. The biggest movies of the year, I think, are all nominated for visual effects. Shang-Chi and Spider-Man. I mean, how many people have seen? I haven't even seen Drive My Car yet. It was barely available. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I go
1: out of my way to see films and films that are going to be, and I only saw seven of the 10.
0: Yeah. I will say this is the first year that I probably could have, if I wanted to, seen all of the films. I think from my count, I think I've seen 31 of 44 possible nominees, and that does not include the shorts. And even then, I think I've watched two out of the live action ones. And I have the possibility of watching like three or four other shorts if I didn't specifically go to the movie theater. But even the movie theater here in Madison allows you to watch the shorts in a big clump. Like I think you can push through all five of them on a Saturday afternoon or something like that. So even then, I had the opportunity to watch everything. I probably won't get to everything, but I've watched probably more Oscar movies this year than any other year. And yet I think my streak is intact since about 2013. I will have seen every best picture nominee before the Oscars. And since like 2011, I will have seen every best picture nominee during that course of that year. So I don't know. It's going to be entertaining. I know we have a lot in store coming up for that episode. I hope that uh, it's still resonates with people that at least listen to this show because it's still important for us. And I'm looking forward to that before we jump into our regular episodes. I think the next regular episode that we have planned now is Hoosiers, which will open up the month of March. We originally were going to do Major League, but we're going to move that one back depending on we have no idea if we're going to have baseball anytime soon. Yeah. Other than that, no other major thoughts at the moment. I uh, look forward to that episode and we'll see you soon. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special. Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be bringing you our second annual Oscars preview with some additional fun in store. You won't want to miss that one, so make sure you like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use so you get all of our content coming up. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok at the handle at podcast. That's G-M-O-A-T podcast